everyone. You're listening to Angel Nears, the podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders, where experienced operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Oleg Kujikov, and our guest today is Joseph Malika, founder and CEO of Inspective, an end-to-end security solution that continuously identifies security vulnerabilities and provides security assurance to customers of rapidly growing tech companies. Today, we're going to talk with Joseph about his journey as a techie, an entrepreneur, and the nuances of the crowdsourced application security. But before we get into that, Joseph, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining. Excited to hear more about you and, and learn about you. So to get us started, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started in security? Sure. So uh, my name is Joseph Malika, the founder and CEO of Inspective, and how I got into security. It all started uh, when I was a teenager in the mid-90s. I uh, dabbled in security. Back in the mid-90s, AOL was the, the king of internet uh, providers the free 100-hour CDs in every magazine fold. I got my hands on a couple of those and uh, ended up kind of figuring out the way around the 100-hour thing. So I sent them an email, let them know about it. They were very nice to me, and they actually ended up hiring me on board to uh, continue finding security vulnerabilities for them. So that's how I started. Oh, that's funny. How Maybe how long were, or maybe you can't disclose this, but how long were you, uh, how, how long between finding the security vulnerability and letting them know uh, elapsed? Oh boy, uh, you're gonna get me in hot waters here. But uh, it wasn't long. Let's just say I was uh, I was honest. I let them know about it right away. Uh, I may have extended be beyond the hundred hours after that, but uh, but I told them right away. And yeah, they uh, they actually it took a little while to kind of convince them that you know I was a nice guy, just uh, came across something bad that I wasn't a malicious actor. And uh, yeah, we ended up uh, working together for a few months after that. Yeah, that's awesome. Cool. So tell us a little bit about your background in in, uh, in startups. You know, um, I know you've worked at several. So yeah, tell us about your journey to from from then at AOL to uh, to today. Sure. So that was, as I mentioned, kind of teenager, kind of dabbling around. I ended up having the consultancy gig out of that. Went to college, got into computer science, uh, became, uh, got into IT, uh, worked in infrastructure, building infrastructure. Uh, from the ground up for different startups, a couple of successful ones, a couple of no successful, not very successful ones, but you know, you get the mix of both. And honestly, I just fell in love with startups, just the idea of building something from scratch. In 2010, I ended up uh, working for Apple's advertising network, where I built out their security practice uh, worldwide. I did that for about four years. Then I went and worked for Verizon Digital Media, which is the Verizon business unit that ended up acquiring Yahoo and AOL. So my life came full circle, uh, where I ended up actually working for AOL towards the end of my career. Oh, go figure. <laughs> That's funny. Had they? I'm sure they'd fixed the vulnerability by then. Well, you told them about it. Oh, yes. sure. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually looking for the person who I emailed with, but uh, you know, it was it was quite a few years. I forgot everybody's names by then. Oh, that's that's awesome. Okay, so that that's a little bit about your background. Tell us about the company you started, and yeah, just what's the elevator pitch for for Inspective? Sure. So, I'll, I'll tell you kind of how I got started with the company. So the idea itself is, how do you build a security team from the ground up? That's kind of something that I um, became good at, if you will, uh, in the last couple of companies that I worked at, and. 
the challenge that I faced was essentially, how do I cover 100% of the attack surface? And how do I leverage every resource that I have, every tool that I have? You know, I can hire some people, I can buy some uh, tools off the shelf, I can build my own internally to ensure the security posture of the organization. But regardless of how hard you work, it's still a challenge to cover 100% coverage of your security posture. Basically, you have to be right 100% of the time and the bad actors have to be right once. So how do you make sure that you have that coverage across all of your organization? So that was the challenge. And of course, the bigger the companies, the, I don't want to say the easier the challenge, but uh, you have more access to more resources to address those challenges. You have more tools that you can afford to buy, more resources that you can afford to hire. But the earlier stage the company the more challenging it is because you don't have the same resources, you don't have the same tools or, or uh, the capability to hire those, those engineers. So that's where the idea of crowdsourcing came about. Uh, I worked with some of the platforms in the, in the space when I was working at Verizon and had great success with them. Um, I know they're considered my competitors, but the, I actually call them my best friends. We're still, we're still on good terms. Uh, they address that market. They, they did a great job leveraging a community of security researchers to provide that continuous security assurance uh, for for their customers. So the differentiator that we're that we're taking uh, to uh, or the approach that we're taking is to address the market that is below that Fortune 500 mark. How do you leverage the same security researcher pool to provide that security assurance for those companies? without the company having access to the same internal resources that those big organizations have. Basically, you don't have people like me working there or the team that I had working there in those organizations to deal with the security researchers every day to continuously look for security vulnerabilities. And that's where we provide that, uh, that resource. Can you keep talking uh, just about like how you, like your day-to-day as a security, you know, your responsibility being the security of your product. Um, you, you know, you mentioned like large companies, they probably have more access points, you know, more places for uh, people to attack just because they're larger. And then mm-hmm. smaller companies are, are smaller. So they have, that they have, you know, less to cover, I guess, when you talk about a surface of vulnerability, but they don't have those large resources. As you're approaching security, uh, you know, working in it, I imagine some of the work is preventative and then some of the work is you know fixing things that are broken so can you talk about what the job looks like and how you approach it as a as a you know full-time security worker sure sure so to kind of be clear the vulnerabilities exist everywhere big companies small companies everybody's going to have those vulnerabilities and it's not a fault of the engineers building the applications it's really because of the the difficulty to maintain that security posture and keeping up with every single different possible scenario that could compromise your application. So let's let's kind of look at it from a different angle. I am a developer. I'm building an application that does X, Y, and Z. We know that probably my boss and, and the entire organization is uh, pushing us to release a certain, that feature, right? That's, that's what we're going to go to market with. That's what we have to release as soon as possible. So as an engineer, my focus, I'm heads down trying to release that feature. Who is looking through that feature to ensure that there is no 
there are no security issues that exist today as I release that feature. Who's testing every single possible scenario that could compromise the data behind, uh, the, behind my application? That's one question. Two, what happens as time goes by? Let's say we did do static code analysis or any of these different tools that, that confirm the security posture of that feature before we released it. And it's all good as of right now. And now it's out in the wild. It's either on people's mobile phones, if it's a mobile application, or it's out there on the web, if it's a web-based application. But that feature is out there being uh, touched by the end user. What happens to the dependencies inside that application that could become compromised down the road? They're not, they don't have anything to do with the feature I just released. It's just a feature that I just released uses a library that now became compromised. Who is keeping track of all these different libraries that are part of that source code and ensuring that they are, uh, any, any attack scenario is vetted and every testing is actually taken into consideration and patched on time. So a perfect example for that one is the Equifax breach. Uh, we all know the story of the Equifax breach because of the, um, the reporting that was done on it, but basically they knew that a, a certain uh, third-party library that they were using, which was the Apache struts, uh, was vulnerable. Uh, they needed to patch it. Everyone knew that it needed to be patched. The team internally knew that they should patch it. They began the process of patching it, but it caused an outage in their staging environment. The developers, of course, pushed back on the patching because that, that would set them back if they have to leave the feature that they were working on to go patch the technical debt. So the decision was made to postpone the patching because that would just delay their release. That delay caused the breach to happen. It was from the time the announcement was made, I believe it was three months later that the breach happened. So that's, that's the challenge. Who's keeping an eye on that? Of course, there are different scenarios that I, I don't need to go into details, but as you can imagine, it's not just one person's fault. It's not just one system's fault. It's just so many different possibilities that can uh, compromise the application. And frankly, that's where a community of crowdsource model can come into play. You don't have to hire a team internally that can look at every single application and every single library that you're using. Of course, there are tools out there that can do portions of that and very uh, niche products that can focus on one of these uh, areas. But if you think about it, every single possible scenario to compromise your application, you can't possibly hire someone or a team internally uh, that is going to be scalable and efficient to look after all of this. That's where um, the, the community of security researchers out there can help you a lot because they will keep an eye on your application. If they find something, they discover vulnerability or compromise, they're going to come identify it in your application, report it to you. You will compensate them for that. They're going to go around and go back and try to find additional security vulnerabilities. While now you know what the where the issue is, you've identified it. You know what you need to do, and then you can proceed with patching it. Yeah, I want to get back to um, kind of crowdsourced security, but you know, as you're going through the job of of security, I, I was just sort of marvelled at like how big of a kind of mental model or or this surface area or the security area, just how vast that attack surface that area it must be right you have to really well it's like it's it's impossible to imagine right and it kind of 
lends itself to this crowdsourced security model, right? Because one individual can't possibly imagine all of the various vulnerabilities or even your product is, is must be a, a, a constantly evolving kind of thing that, that's using libraries from other places that are also evolving, um, sometimes deprecating. So it's just a, a vast thing to keep track of. So can you talk about some of the advantages of this crowdsource security model and, and, and just start like, what is it uh, again, one more time? And why do you think it's a better model for security than some others? Sure, sure. But actually, I want to touch on what you just said about how uh, vast it is. We're only talking about the application security side of security. And we're essentially also talking about the red teaming side. So the red teaming is basically the attack simulation uh, side of that. So many different other areas of, of security that I haven't even touched on, right? You have the network security side that would, where you're blocking ports and ensuring that there's no uh, traffic, malicious traffic coming in, the DDoS attacks and everything of that nature. Uh, and then, of course, you have the, the, the blue team, which is more on the defense side, the security operations center, which monitors every single um, um, log entry that comes in that basically you can correlate them to each other and identify a suspicious activity and then respond to it accordingly. And then, of course, you have compliance. Security is very big. That's the challenge. And the the, the more you get to the 10,000-foot view at, to look at it, uh, the more kind of uh, uh, challenging it seems. But honestly, if you zoom in and you start addressing one sector at a time and applying the right strategy towards addressing one sector at a time, and not just focus it on one, but take a holistic approach to security, you're going to have much better success. That's why I always recommend to companies not to think of security as compliance only, uh, because they're not the same thing. Compliance is one element of security, uh, but it doesn't ensure security. It gives you compliance reporting. But anyway, that's another conversation for another discussion. Let me answer your question about kind of the crowdsourcing model of this. There is, there's really two sides to it, and we're talking about the company, the, the customer side of it. Um, so as a company, again, I want to ensure the security posture of my environment. Um, and I have my application out there on my end user's mobile device, or it's out there on the web, and everyone is out there logging into it and, and interacting with the data that I have behind that application. So a crowdsource model is basically these experts, these specialists in security who know how to find security vulnerabilities, sometimes in even their own little deep expertise area. Like this one is really good at SQL injection. That one is cross-site script. And I can get very geeky here and, and talk about each one of those in, in detail, but I'll, I'll, I'll spare you all that. But each one of those, you get the experts who really know how to find every single possible attack uh, scenario and payload that they can apply to your application to compromise the data behind it. So those individuals, again, if you think about it, if I get that expert to work for me full-time, it's they're going to be super helpful for a short period of time. And then what do they do after that? That's not the generalist that you need within your organization as a full-time employee. You want to leverage them when there is an issue. You want to get them excited to find security vulnerabilities in your systems that pertain to their expertise. So use an example of, of generalists versus specialists. So you would go to your family practice doctor 
for just your overall security, your overall health, uh, uh, just to kind of maintain good health, right? Your annual checkup and things like that. But once you have something that requires specialties, then that's when you go to a specialist. That's when you want to go address a specific problem with your body, right? Same thing goes with security. I can't, I shouldn't hire these people internally full-time because I have a vast security attack surface, as we, as we discussed, that that person is going to be really good at one small subset of that, but is not going to be as successful in everything else. So it's kind of not a setup for success. In a crowdsource model, they're able to come work on your application, find the security vulnerabilities that, that they're really good at, and maybe challenge themselves in areas where they've really never got a chance to work on these types of, um, of vulnerabilities. So they, they start exploring and teach themselves in there. When they identify something, they're going to report it to you. And if it's valid and you accept it, you reward them for it. Now they go back and they find different vulnerabilities, maybe in your application or go move on to a different customer, a different application and find those vulnerabilities there. So now it's a win-win from a company standpoint, you just leverage that expert for the deep expertise that he or she has in that area, in that domain, so that they can provide you with that security vulnerability report that now you can move on and, and uh, start remediating it and start addressing the issue. While on the flip side, that same person got to work with you. That's uh, That person could be on the other side of the world. Um, he or she may not have ever had a chance to actually work for your uh, big organization, big tech company here in LA or San Francisco or uh, you know in the US or any other part of the world that is outside of their geographic region that traditionally they wouldn't have access to go work for in a traditional kind of employer-employee relationship. So now with this crowdsource model, they're able to work for you and all the other uh, companies that uh, that could leverage their expertise. Yeah, it's such an interesting model, and I think it really lends itself to security, right? I don't think in engineering or sales, I don't know if there's as much of a need to immediately bring in an expert right away, right? A lot of the ways you build sales and engineering and other teams is, is you bring in people that can grow into kind of these expert level positions. But as a, when it comes to security, like you you want the expert immediately, right? And um, And maybe most of the work needs to be done up front, whereas in those other departments, it's it's ongoing. The work never ends, right? You're always building a new feature. You're always trying to close another deal. So it's kind of this inverse need that, that almost sounds kind of like, uh, like consulting or something, you know, you, you, you bring someone in to, to do a job and you build a relationship that way. Yeah, no, no, you're, you actually, you hit the nail on the head there because you mentioned sales and, and engineering, let's just say software development. In this case, it's a, uh, it's kind of different because in order to become a successful salesperson for an organization or a developer for an organization, you need domain expertise in that area. And that is acquired mostly from that company itself. So if you onboard the developer, he or she is gonna to need to be trained on your code base, exactly what you're building and the feature set and all of that. They need to really familiarize themselves with your code base for probably a couple of months before they start uh, producing and, and becoming productive in their in their area. So that ramp up is, is an acquired um, trained skill that they have to gain within your organization to become successful. Similarly, also on the sales side. But from a security researcher standpoint, 
their domain expertise is not in your code base or any proprietary information within your organization, like your sales material, your pitch, and, and on the developer side from code base, it's about the usability of your product. So if I can interact with your application, if I know your application, plus I know how to test for certain vulnerabilities, combining those two, I can start working on your application becoming productive. And what I mean by that is on the first part is that interaction with your application, it's really user experience, right? Companies work very, very hard and they make a huge investment in the UX of their product so that an end user doesn't need any training. Once I give you an application to download on your mobile app, uh, most of the time a three-year-old grabs the mobile phone and they can play the game. They know exactly how to interact with it. So they make it simple enough where the interaction is not a skill that would take a long time to acquire, like a software developer would need for your code base or a salesperson for with your sales material. And the second half of it is that security researcher's expertise in finding those security vulnerabilities and what to look for and how to test for it and how to report it and how to communicate it to the to the customer, to the company. So combining those two, the first one, again, it's a very short ramp. As long as I understand how your application works, as long as I know where your private data that you would be um, interested in protecting lives. So basically if it's a, a financial app, it's it's uh, your financial data. If it's, a, you know, you, uh, the CMS, for example, it's gonna be your customer data, your PII, things like that. As long as I understand where the mechanics are, where the crown jewels are, then I know what to look for. And because I have my skill set of finding um, these vulnerabilities within an input field, within an API call, within you know this type of technology or that type of framework, I can combine those two pretty quickly. So it's a very unique environment for that crowdsource model where someone can come in and essentially within hours, they can start reporting vulnerabilities. So one thing that at Inspective that we take pride in is when we onboard a new customer, typically it's within 24 to 48 hours that they start receiving vulnerabilities from us because our security researchers, the second that they see a new customer that has been onboarded, they get excited. It's a, it's a fresh new application to test and find vulnerabilities on. So it's fun for them. You know, this is an opportunity to start identifying vulnerabilities. That's what they're here for. So then they jump on. They figure out the application. They know exactly what, okay, it's a financial app. Here's the data. I get it. Now let me go ahead and try my skills. Let me try my uh, my scripts that I wrote. And when they find something, they start reporting. So that's how it works. That's so interesting and unique, right? Because like we said with the other, with the other departments, the value lies in kind of learning what's under the hood and, and learning kind of the the nuances of uh, the product you're building, the, you know, the, the engineering stack or the sales deck. Whereas with security, you know, your, your expertise lies outside, like you mentioned, and you can almost get to work right away, right? You, you just need to understand exactly. what you're looking for, and then you can start hunting for it. I also imagine there's not a lot of these super technical experts, you know, not the generalists, but the specialists who, uh, who, who really focus on one thing. And this crowdsource model gives them the opportunity to get working right away for multiple companies at once. I imagine if you're doing this, you're doing it for multiple people, uh, or at least you have that option. So this crowdsource model is, is, is very interesting. So we've kind of mentioned some of the things that drive this crowdsource security model. Are there any other key factors that kind of 
drive this? Are there any other competing models? I guess like building your own team internally, which we've kind of talked about. Yeah. What are some of the things that drive the popularity of, of crowdsourced security? Sure. So uh, it's, um, it's not possible to replicate a team like that internally because it's inefficient to hire a team internally to do that. Um, a lot of companies do hire a red team internally. They do hire pen testers internally and they still use the crowdsourced uh, model to complement their internal team. Of course, not every company can afford that and not every company should make that investment. Uh, but even those who do will uh, leverage crowdsourced model. For example, Google. Uh, Google was the company, I believe, that uh, coined the term bug bounty. I believe it was uh, 2010 to 2012. I can't remember the exact date. Uh, but that's when they encouraged the community to report security vulnerabilities and said, if you report a bug, we'll give you a bounty. Um, and of course, it took a little bit of time for that community to really believe that this is legit and you're not going to report me to the Interpol or the FBI once I report something. And, uh, you know, then uh, they tried it. And sure enough, Google paid them and, and put a Hall of Fame up and put their name up there and started promoting them as experts in the, in the space. And that encouraged people to really start applying that skill that traditionally people, you know, there is a taboo about being a, a security researcher. The word hacker is, uh, you know, it's, it has a negative connotation to it, even though uh, a lot of security experts would really argue against using it in a, in a negative sense because they believe hacker is a positive term. Um, it's bad actors that are the ones that are doing, uh, you know, all the uh, negative things. But uh, yeah, back to those companies, they're the ones that, uh, that still, they have their best of the best working internally. They have a great security team internally, yet they spun up that community of um, bug bounty idea, bug bounty hunters uh, to go report security vulnerability to them in addition to what they are able to find internally through the internal team that they have. Very interesting. What are some of the various solutions deployed by crowdsourced security vendors today? So in general, I would say there are a couple of solutions that complement the crowdsource model. I truly believe that there is nothing that will replace the crowdsource model. And the challenge right now is how a company can adopt a, an, a platform like that and make it successful. How do you encourage uh, the security community to feed you all this information and you have a process internally to intake all of that information as it comes in and reward those researchers fairly and in a streamlined way. So the challenge is really about how to adopt it correctly and how to uh, implement it in a streamlined way internally, as opposed to being replaced by other products. Now, there are other complementary uh, systems and products out there and, and services out there, like for example, a pen test. Penetration testing or pen test for short is typically and traditionally something that companies do once a year for compliance. It's really not that vastly different from the crowdsource model. You're asking an, a third party to come and perform a testing on your application and for the purpose of getting a report that says that this third party auditor performed the test and here is the output of that test. Here are the 10, 15, 20 vulnerabilities discovered and here are the criteria severity for each one and here are the actions that we took internally. 
Typically, you would take that output and you'll give it to your auditor for whatever compliance framework that you're pursuing, and that would get you certified. So the idea was there. They have been implemented in the past and they still, they still do, uh, or they still are to this day, but for the purpose of compliance. The challenge with that is it's a one-time test once a year, and it is done by one person or a small group of people, let's say. We talked about the generalists versus the experts. Let's say that small group of individuals who are performing the test are experts. Each one of them is an expert in his or her own domain. You can't get the 100% coverage when you have specific handful of experts looking at their area of expertise within your application. There are going, there are bound to be gaps in the areas that you're looking for. Two, it's time bound. So if I'm asking someone to come and perform a pen test over the span of the next two weeks, and then I'll call you again next year, what's going to happen after two weeks? Am I, what, what about all the new features that I'm releasing for the remaining 50 weeks of that year? Um, I'm not going to stop developing my application. I'm not going to start uh, stop adding new features there that potentially can introduce new vulnerabilities. So who's going to be looking after that moving forward for that remainder of the time? Those are the challenges that come with uh, just using a pen test as a the only security assurance tool that you have or using compliance in general as the only security assurance tool that you have. So it's complementary, gets you the compliance aspect, but it does not give you the overall security posture and security assurance. And then if we look at third-party tools that we can implement, there are so many great ones out there, but again, they're so specialized in their own area. So we have products you know, that can look at your open ports, your dynamic code testing, basically um, uh, scripts that run on your external application and identify red flags that could potentially be a risk they take a little bit of time to implement and fine tune. And the output of it, a lot of times is actually more time consuming to process everything and eliminate all the false positives out of it in order for you to find the needle in the haystack of actually beneficial uh, vulnerabilities or beneficial data about vulnerabilities that you should address immediately. So that resource intensity that you have to apply to it just to get it cleaned up and identify exactly what you need to do becomes a challenge uh, for, for an organization. And the output for that also falls traditionally under compliance. That's something that a compl most compliance frameworks would require. So it falls under kind of the same uh, thing as a pen test. Those two, again, one is one person or individuals that will come in once a year. You still have the gap in time. You have the gap in skill set, unfortunately, and then you have the other tools that are looking for the same exact thing over and over and over again. There is no new creativity, new perspective looking at the application. It's just if this port opened up today and it wasn't open yesterday, I'm going to give you a red flag. Uh, if this is looks like a potential risk, I'm going to give you a red flag. You can go ahead and say, I don't want to see this one again. Uh, that's Or I'm going to go ahead and fix it. That's a very static approach to security. Again, all of those are complementary. But the crowdsource model, that human being that can look at your application, interact with the data and figure out, wait a minute, I see this. If I try this, I'm going to get that. Or that thing that I read about on a blog post from another person 
that talks about this, this specific vulnerability. Let me go try it on your application. And there we go. I found a new vulnerability that you're going to benefit from. Well, thanks for breaking that down. We're about halfway through here. So let's move on to talking about your company, Inspective. What's the story behind starting your company? You have a, a background in startups. Why did you decide to, to start a startup yourself? Sure. So I've always wanted to um, do it again. So I, I mentioned early on in my career, after my uh, adventure with AOL, uh, I, made the, I made some money out of that and ended up actually starting my own voiceover IP company with my brother in the late 90s, back in the VoIP uh, boom. Uh, we had a modest success out of that. And uh, again, I just fell in love with the idea of, of startups and I wanted to keep doing it. Uh, but I, never, I didn't feel like I was ready to do it again. Uh, as a solo entrepreneur or as a, as a founder. So I joined founding teams um, with great ideas to kind of become one of their early or first hire uh, to help them build a company. Um, as I mentioned, a couple of successes, one was sold to Ericsson, another one was sold to Viacom. Um, so that was fun. I wanted to find the right opportunity. And to be honest with you, I just felt like I was not ready. Uh, went to business school, you know, uh, I uh, majored in entrepreneurship. Like this, this is what I wanted to do. I just never found the idea that I felt so compelled to go, go start until I came across the crowdsourcing model of security um, uh, through working with um, Verizon. That's when I recognized there is a huge opportunity here. It's still early stage. It's something that there is a lot of attraction to. Um, and so far, it seemed like it was only accessible by large corporations, big companies, Tesla, Uber, Starbucks, Google, Facebook, all those organizations have implemented bug bounty in one way or another. What happens to the earlier stage companies? The challenge that I saw in those in that sector of the market is there are two main barriers to entry. One is the financial unpredictability of the model, where basically I pay a subscription to the platform that facilitates and brokers the relationship with the researchers. But then every time there is a security vulnerability that is exposed, I have to pay that researcher um, a sum of money that is a compensation for that finding. How much should I budget for that? I don't know. And for a company that is not a Fortune 500 company, that's almost impossible thing to do to start an engagement where you don't know how much it's going to cost you. Now, there are some ideas there that you can do, but really, if I wanted to be running nonstop and I want to find every single security vulnerability using that community nonstop, I have to set a blank check or I have to over budget for it, which is almost impossible for, for that market. The second challenge is the operational overhead. As I mentioned, you most of the companies that we are talking to don't necessarily have their own internal security team. Or if they do, it's a very small security organization that's already stretched thin enough as it is. They're not looking to onboard another tool or another platform that's going to add more overhead to their operation. They're already tapped out. So how do you provide them with the need that they obviously have? How do you solve that problem? How do you address that pain for them without saying you must give us a blank check or just put a lot of money in this thing and hopefully that's going to be enough? Or two, um, or on the other side, 
without having to say you're going to have to hire someone internally or i'm going to add more workload on your on your existing team in order for you to deal with those security researchers as vulnerabilities start coming in so those were the two challenges that i identified in this beautiful platform uh, solution that's that's already out there as i mentioned you know we're not the only one in the bug bounty space uh, we have great colleagues out there that are solving this problem but they're addressing it for the fortune 500 or the larger players in the market. We wanted to come out and address those two needs so that we can help provide that same value to those organizations that cannot currently reach into that market or into that platform uh, solution that exists today. So ours is a a subscription service. You're paying a fixed cost that does not fluctuate based on the number of vulnerabilities that we deliver. It's the same security community that works on all the other platforms, because as you mentioned, those researchers, they're excited to apply that skill towards every company that they can. They're not tied down to a specific platform or a specific organization. They don't work for Google. They don't work for Facebook. They're more than happy to provide the same vulnerability if it exists in Google and in Facebook to provide it to both of them. So if Google happens to be our customer and Facebook happens to be with the other platform, they will work on our platform and the other one. So that's the first um, challenge that we're addressing is that subscription model to eliminate that financial unpredictability. The second challenge that we're addressing is the operational overhead. Again, I, I was able to build a team internally at Verizon where I was able to facilitate all of that communication that was coming from the security researchers. So frankly, I got access to an opportunity to streamline that process internally for the organization, and I knew how to make it move faster, how to take all the raw data from those security researchers and turn it into valuable information that my um, executives can read and understand, my developers can read and understand, and my auditors can read and understand. So we've built that team internally here that can work on behalf of all of our customers to facilitate the communication between the researchers and our customers. So data comes in from our researchers. We take it, we are communicating with our researchers. We are determining the payout to them. And all of that is on behalf of the customer so they don't have to deal with all that uh, operational overhead. And once we accept something from one of the researchers for one of our customers, we then award that researcher, they go away to find more vulnerabilities while we take that, polish it and give it to our customer. Okay, so there was a lot a lot there. You've kind of told us what separates you from other maybe competitors in the space. Uh, you talked a little bit about how competitive the space is and a little bit more even about um, your, your how you guys are innovating. Can you talk about building the team going back to 2018 all the way to today? Sure. So I actually started the company with a good friend of mine. Uh, his name is Clark Landry. He's one amazing entrepreneur that I've known for over 15 years. Uh, he's actually one of the co-founders of um, one of the companies that uh, I uh, got to uh, work with early on in my career, One of the one that we sold to Viacom in 2008. So I've kept in touch with him. Uh, the guy is an amazing entrepreneur. He knows every investor in, in the area. Uh, he's actually uh, an incredible investor and founder uh, himself. I um, reached out to him and I told him the idea that I have. And I said, let's, uh, this is what I want to do. And to be honest with you, I thought I was pitching him to maybe get an angel in, uh, angel check 
he ended up saying, you know what, I love your idea so much. I'm willing to quit what I'm working on and come and start this with you. So that gave me a lot of confidence right there. And I said, okay, let's do it. So we started, of course, we set it up in a way that was more beneficial for both of us. As, as a, a founder uh, guy, he's able to start companies. He loves kind of the early stage, the day one, the first gear, as we call it, uh, of a company. So he was uh, uh, great enough to give me the first two years uh, of the company to kind of partner with me to take it to where we were in 2020, uh, early 2020. That's where we kind of were ready to go to market. And uh, then the pandemic hit. We thought kind of things were going to slow down to a screeching halt, but uh, we were fortunate and blessed enough that uh, things actually took off and the team was absolutely amazing. We had a very, very lean team at the time. We were about to ramp up and, and uh, go big, but of course this pandemic happened. So we needed to figure out what's next. Ended up signing on a lot of great customers. Uh, some actually were clients of our competitors and uh, they came to us uh, along with customers that never had a solution like that in place and were able to convince them that this is a solution that they need. Uh, we ended up hitting profitability. We then went out for a full seed round um, in November and that was, that was an incredible opportunity to kind of talk to every great investor in LA and the Bay Area and elsewhere. Uh, and uh, it, was, it was a great, great time. Um, and here we are. We have been on a hiring spree since we closed around in November. I think we've hired about 15 people uh, since then. Well, congrats. Everyone remote, Thank right? You. Everyone remote. I mean, we, we've embraced the whole idea of crowdsourcing, so it would behoove us to kind <laughs> of keep that whole model of remote. But, you know, that's, that's actually an interesting point. I, I don't see the... So the interesting thing that happened out of the pandemic is companies now were able to restructure their operations to work remotely. And that's going to be an interesting opportunity for companies to really evaluate the, the requirement of having a geographic radius of talent pool. So traditionally, we've been hiring people within a certain radius from our office or from one of our offices in order for them to um, be part of this organization. Now that you are not limited by that geographic location, if I'm here in LA and my employees in LA, both of us are working remotely anyway. So why do I have to be restricted by LA market? Why can't I get this incredible uh, person who happens to be living in Austin or uh, in another part of the country? Let's extend that even outside of the country border. Why can't we go to another country if we can figure out a, um, a workflow that works time zone wise, where we have overlap, where we're communicating in a streamlined way. So I believe the that whole remote workforce was really more accelerated by the um, pandemic as opposed to being created by the pandemic. There were other companies that already started as um, remote first, uh, pre-pandemic, they started as remote first or remote only. Uh, but now I see most companies are embracing this. Now the question is going to be how much of that workforce do we want to bring back into the office? And should we really look into that old traditional model and reapplying it now post-pandemic? Which brings me to the whole idea of crowdsource model. The same talent pool that you're looking at for that security researcher community, 
I no longer have to look for a security researcher who happens to be living in LA because he or she has to come to my office. I can now have someone who's on the other side of the world in Europe, Asia, Middle East, or India. That's now the talent pool becomes more global, which is really the essence of our organization. Okay, so you might not be looking to uh, bring people back into the office anytime soon. This model seems to be working working out for you. Congratulations on, on your successes this past year. It sounds like you guys are growing really fast. What are some of the biggest challenges ahead of you that you, that you still need to address as an organization? That is an interesting question. From a market standpoint, it's the, the challenge of building the product fast enough to keep with the demand. So we have two customers, essentially. We have the paying customer, we have the organizations that are seeking security through the community, and we have the security researchers. Both of them, we consider our customers, even though one is paying and the other one gets paid, uh, but they are our customers. So being able to maintain that velocity of delivering the features for both sides of that marketplace is key for us, which of course is one of the reasons why we are accelerating our hiring process and and, uh, hiring really fast at this point. Um, The other side is really taking that 10,000 foot view and putting on my customer hat, having been that customer for 20 years myself, looking at the market itself and saying, as a security practitioner, what do I need? It's not the what we provide, it's why we provide it. Why would a company need us? Do they need us to check a compliance box? Are they using our product just so that they can have the report of all the vulnerabilities so that they can pass it on to uh, an auditor that will give them a compliance check? Is it for their internal engineers who are looking at our vulnerabilities that we're reporting to them and they're actioning them and, and remediating them? Or is it for the executive and that organization who is seeking a high level overview of the security posture of the organization? I just want to know, are we good? And is there something wrong? Like that kind of C-level overview of the organization. Each one of those buyer persona, if you will, has their own feature set that would be required in our platform. So understanding what the market needs and understanding why a buyer would come in and say, I like Inspective, this is gonna solve my pain. What is that pain? And addressing that specifically head on instead of falling kind of for the the natural tendency of trying to build a product that I personally believe in, that I think is gonna solve my problem or would have solved my problem uh, in my past lives, but really understanding what the market is asking for, that every customer that we have today and every prospect that we're talking to, why would they sign up with us? Why would they not sign up with us today? And what is the tool that we can put in there? What is the feature that we can put in there to, to help that market? To help those individuals. That's those are the challenges that I'm kind of looking at right now uh, with my investors, with my advisors. But uh, I think the biggest challenge that you probably can help me with is recruiting. Uh, we we hired 15 people, as I said, but we are constantly uh, recruiting. So this is something that I'm definitely always looking for the right folks, and it's not just about the rock stars, but the right rock stars. There are a lot of rock stars out there. And I'd love to have all of them working here. 
but I'm looking for the right rock stars who want to apply their skill, their unique talent and their unique skill towards a company at this stage in this market so we can have fun together. Yeah, that's a that's a great great thought. You know, I usually save this till the end of the episode, but since we're here, uh, if you're listening, if someone's listening and they want to reach out because this was an interesting topic to them, what's the best way to reach you and maybe learn more about Inspective? Sure. So we are inspective.com, uh, inspectid.com. You can email me directly, joseph at inspective.com. Thank you. Okay, so let's wrap this up. I got one more question. I think you mentioned a subscription model because you know uh, you don't want to sign over a blank check, and and you know that your kind of subscription model is the way that you're catering to these businesses outside of the Fortune 500. So can you talk about the decision, how 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 you charge, or or what went into that kind of thinking? Sure. So the uh, pricing model itself is a um, specific dollar amount that is multiplied by the number of applications that you have. So most companies would have a single application, right? You're, you're an e-commerce platform and, and you have the www.yourcompany.com uh, as your um, uh, application. Or you could be a mobile gaming publisher and you have multiple games that you're publishing and you're maintaining the security of so now it would be the multiple of those uh, products uh, that's that's the pricing model that we have it does not fluctuate again um, when the um, with the number of vulnerabilities that come in so i know a lot of questions have been asked uh, either by prospective clients or even by my uh, investors is how do you make sure that you don't run out of money and what happens if we start costing you as a customer, if we start costing you more than uh, we're paying you? The interesting thing here is every time there is a vulnerability that comes in for one of our customers, it becomes part of our arsenal of finding security vulnerabilities. We become better at what we do. So when a vulnerability comes in for customer X, that is something that our team becomes better at understanding and understanding the, the risk of that specific vulnerability that can apply to other customers within our uh, platform. So you immediately, the second a company signs on board, uh, comes on board, they gain that network effect of all the security vulnerabilities that we have already come across so far, in addition to what we are going to find that are unique to you, that could potentially help other customers that we have or future customers that we will have. Very interesting. Yeah, that's 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 awesome. Okay, so we're we're kind of uh you know almost out of time here. Just last question from me. You know, this has been a, a fantastic interview. I want to make sure that we have a hundred percent coverage on all the topics we we should have covered. So maybe what's uh, what's the most important topic or or question or or you know item related to crowdsourced security models that I did not ask today? Is there anything you think is worth mentioning before we get out of here? Well, you did a great job asking all the questions uh, on that model, uh, and I really appreciate it. Uh, no, it's been it's been a lot of fun being on your podcast. Uh, really enjoyed it, and uh, and thanks for uh, inviting me on. Okay, well then, uh, yeah, then we have perfect coverage, and I uh, I feel very secure in getting out of here. Uh, we're gonna end the show there. <laughs> Thank you. If you liked our show, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts, and uh, send us send us your thoughts to info at angelnears dot com uh, if if you're able. Thanks, uh, Joseph, for joining the show today. I learned a lot about uh, about security and, uh, well, just so much. Um, so thank you for coming on and sharing uh, sharing your story with us and the listeners. Thank you, Oleg. Thank you for having me.